Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hurricanes, typhoons, tropical storms are the focus of so much attention right now. But another kind of fierce windstorm is also causing concern for people, their homes, and their communities. Tornadoes are twisting their way into the sights of scientists as they try to learn if climate change is shifting both where and when they tear through Canadian towns. And if the winds come, some tips on how to help buildings survive intact. Also, it may sound strange, but today we'll talk about how to play games with climate change. Games with a purpose. How about an opportunity with a purpose? Save the planet, save some money, get to work all at once. Stay tuned to find out how. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. While scientists have been able to link climate change to the growing strength of hurricanes and the intensity of scorching heat waves and severe drought, understanding what, if any, role the warming planet plays when it comes to tornadoes has proved more difficult. Researchers say they simply don't know yet, but they are seeing changes. And here in Canada, some scientists say these shifts, along with a growing population, could make people and property more vulnerable. That's why they believe the country needs to do a better job of warning Canadians about the risks and telling them how to prepare. Here's Joan Weber with the CBC's Audio Documentary Unit. On an early August evening in 2020, James Blacksmith was travelling along Highway 83, which cuts north-south across Manitoba. I travelled down the highway and I didn't see no storm clouds or nothing. and It's just a dark cloud button it, it, like straight above me. And... Uh, it just started getting uh, windy. Then something hit his Jeep, and he worried it was hail. So James pulled off the road and onto a farm not far from the town of Verdon. I pulled in under under the uh, those big pine trees, a big row of pine trees I pulled under. And there was a white truck that pulled up beside me. He could see two people inside. Figured they were doing exactly as he was, trying to take cover. I thought I'd be safe pulling into that farmyard and parking under the trees, but that, that was the worst thing to do, I guess. James remembers the white truck being there only for a moment before it suddenly began backing up. Right after that that truck disappeared on my sight, that, uh, I, when I looked forward, I seen it looked like the ground was like, like curling up towards me like a wave, and it just happened so fast. I pulled right into the tornado, I guess. I didn't know. Seven minutes earlier, a tornado warning had gone out, an alert from Environment and Climate Change Canada. But James never got the warning. Approximately 7.40 p.m. Central Time, we noticed big updrafts fire here. They were merging in. Nearby, though, storm chasers had been tracking and filming 
a menacing looking cloud formation. The footage is somewhat surreal. Storm chaser Aaron Jajak has captured a sun-streaked blue sky, the backdrop to this ominous-looking dark funnel cloud that touches down. You can see it churning up the earth and hurling debris as it approaches the farm where James and the white truck had pulled in. In his film, The Most Remarkable Tornado in Canadian History, Jajak manages to film himself as this monstrous twister looms behind him just across a field. My windows blew out. All the dust and whatever blowing through my Jeep. But it sounded like a a train was coming by or something. It it just, it loud. I laid down in my Jeep. I just couldn't remember praying to to my parents who uh, who are passed away uh, to help me. I remember that I thought I was going to die. And I, I, I remember getting tossed and tumbled. And when I came to a stop, everything uh, came to a quiet calm. And but I started feeling pain in my in my uh, my back, and my legs were going numb because I was a. Uh, Hanging upside down, I guess, and pinned, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't move my legs. I heard somebody yelling, and I died. I heard, so I started yelling back and honking my horn, and they, that's when they found me. We begin tonight with some breaking news out of the Verdon area. A tornado touched down tonight near Scarth. Witnesses say two vehicles were thrown from the highway, and the twister also hit a farmyard. Emergency officials weren't able to confirm tonight the extent of any injuries. We'll continue to update this breaking news story. Well, they said I'd broken my neck. I had some cracked vertebrae, and they just put my neck in a brace. And uh, after after a week, I think, I was able to walk. But he kept worrying about the two people who had been in that white truck. When when I was in the hospital, I asked how they were doing, and I didn't get no reply. And... After a while, I think that's when they said that uh, they never made it through the tornado. From CBC News, The World This Hour, I'm Kaz Balvan. Two deaths, a man and a woman, were killed when they were thrown from their vehicle by the twister. At least one other person was injured. Carter Tilbury and Shayna Barneski were both 18 years old and recent high school graduates. Such fatalities from a tornado in this country are rare, but they do happen. Lots of people will remember the massive tornado that hit Edmonton one Friday afternoon more than three decades ago. Memorable because it hit such a big city and because it killed 27 people. Hundreds more were injured. Homes were destroyed and the damages were huge in the hundreds of millions. It was the second deadliest twister in Canadian history. The one that caused even more fatalities, at least 28, happened in 1912 in Regina. And just this past May, 11 people died in a massive storm in Ontario and Quebec. It was called a derecho, which included four twisters. But the thing is, most tornadoes in Canada hit rural, unpopulated areas, sometimes just in the middle of nowhere. So in the past, many of those have gone undetected. 
So we set out to try to, to get a, a real sense of what's happening across the country as far as tornado occurrence and, and the characteristics of tornadoes, regardless of it's an, if it's in a populated area or not, and what does that mean for tornado risk. This is David Sills. He used to work for Environment Canada for decades as a severe weather scientist. In 2017, he and Greg Kopp, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Western, formed the Northern Tornadoes Project at Western University. Since then, their goal has been to get a better understanding of the true nature of tornado activity across the country by trying to identify every single twister in Canada. Part of what we want to do over the longer term is be able to document any possible changes to tornadoes when they occur, the number of them, where they occur spatially, what time of year that they're happening. We try to capture all of that information. Some of what they're trying to determine is what impact climate change may be having on tornado activity. The climate change influences aren't as simple as more storms, more tornadoes. It's more how are changes happening on a, on a regional level and seasonal maybe even time of day. We haven't looked at that part yet. But there there are changes happening. They're just not the kind of changes that we thought might be happening at this point. They say that though they're identifying more tornadoes than in the past by using everything from eyewitness accounts to high-resolution satellite imagery to doing their own ground investigations, the average number of tornadoes that cause damage every year hasn't really changed much. It appears to be holding steady at somewhere between 60 to 70 per year. But what they have detected is a change in the pattern of tornadoes. Whether this is climate change related, they don't know yet. So the, f- the first step is to find these trends. The second step is to say, okay, what's causing these trends? What we did find for Southern Ontario is a statistical uh, pattern of tornadoes occurring later in the year. He's talking about powerful twisters rated EF2 and higher, which means winds over 180 kilometers per hour. So instead of having a maximum uh, in the early summer, it's now a maximum in the late summer. And we have noticed that uh, one of the reasons we investigated that is because anecdotally, uh, forecasters were saying, how come we're getting all our, all of our big tornadoes later in the year lately? It seems like in the last decade or so, it's, you know, it's, there's just been a shift. So, you know, great, great uh, thing to look at with a data set that we have. And sure enough, there was this uh, statistically significant trend towards significant tornadoes occurring later in the year. Even into September. And that has some implications. Uh, as you go later in the year, it gets darker earlier. Um, so there may be more tornadoes uh, occurring at dusk or, or in the dark. Uh, schools are in rather than uh, having the students out and being able to see tornadoes as they come. So there are some safety implications for just a change like that, just a seasonal change. Uh, In the U.S., they're finding that the the traditional tornado alley that goes through the Great Plains is just starting to to shift eastward into more populated areas. And if that shift continues, that's going to have big implications as well. The scientists caution that if the tornado season were to expand, the risk to Canadians would obviously increase. And already, Sill says, lots of people are unaware of the threat twisters pose in this country. Everybody sees what happens in the U.S. and thinks, well, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> but in, in our peak months, you know, between you know, June and August, 
anything that happens in the U.S. is possible here. It wasn't that long ago that people in Quebec would tell us, oh, we don't get big tornadoes in Quebec. They're not saying that anymore. <laughs> They've had a number of big outbreaks that we found now. They've had EF3 tornadoes, and they are in a tornado-prone area where they can get up to EF5 tornadoes. So I think that uh, there's been a real shift in awareness, particularly in, in that region, because of the work that we've done that, hey, the, you know, southern Quebec and is, is tornado-prone. And uh, you have to consider that when you when you do things like build or, or you know, municipal risk assessments and these kinds of things. And the other thing that's happening is our population is growing and we're spreading out and covering more of the land. And so there's going to be more impacts just because of population growth and expansion of our suburban areas. It's why Greg Kopp and David Sills say way more work has to go into warning Canadians about tornado risks and better protecting them. Earlier this year, they did their first ever report card to assess how well Environment and Climate Change Canada is doing when it comes to warnings. According to recent data from the Northern Tornadoes Project out of Western University, Environment and Climate Change Canada's warnings are falling behind its own targets. We found they hadn't been doing very well over the last three years. Uh, about 70% of tornadoes had no tornado warning on them. And that included uh, mo most of the EF2 tornadoes that we have in our database didn't have a tornado warning on them. So th these are the significant tornadoes. Uh, I mean, a lot of them were occurring in forests, but some fat fatalities that are on record are when a tornado hits a, a fishing camp in a forest. So, you know, it, it's not like if it hits a forest, nothing is going to happen. There are lots of people in the forest doing certain activities in the summertime. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, uh, you know, the performance could use improvement. At the time, Environment and Climate Change Canada responded, saying it had made progress. Environment Canada says the agency is always improving, with ongoing upgrades to all 33 of its radar sites and plans for more precise tornado warning polygons. Sills points out that Canada has a fraction of the radars used in the U.S. and comparatively few forecasters, something Environment Canada called an unfair comparison. Joanne Sancour says some tornadoes aren't clearly visible on radar, and Canada's sparse population makes eyewitness reports difficult. You have to consider the, the population base, the, the environment. There's a lot more... Um, we're a country more prone to severe weather during the winter than we are in, in the summer month. But Sill suggests there's more to it. There seems to be a lot of concern that overwarning will result in, in people not paying attention to warnings in the future. So they, they tend to hold back and, and only warn when, uh, when it's very obvious. But by that time, the tornado is usually in progress and uh, sometimes it's already over by the time the warning comes out, which has been the case in some of our higher profile events. So, you know, we're, we're trying to come up with, uh, with some, some ways that those scores can be improved through f forecaster actions. We're also working on developing algorithms that will help a forecaster recognize a potential tornado before it starts causing damage. Greg Kopp acknowledges there have been some improvements. The, the big development really is that warnings go to cell phones. And, um, and so that's, that, I think, is a, a tremendously positive development. Uh, you know, everyone having a warning in their pocket, if you will, is, is a good thing. 
something that might have helped James Blacksmith, the man who drove right into the path of that Manitoba tornado. But he's not convinced. I think it, it could have helped, but like I said, I was already traveling on the highway. And what am I going to do when I get that warning? Where am I going to go? Or I, I don't know what, what's happening. Now, if you're thinking it's remarkable that James Blacksmith should survive a tornado, you might be amazed to learn he lived through another twister a few years prior at his home in Sioux Valley First Nation, Manitoba. And his experience highlights an issue both scientists are concerned about. Me and my common-law wife, were, uh, she was uh, hiding in the, in the bathroom, and I was just trying to look out the window, but the, the rain was so thick I couldn't see out the window. After it was over, uh, my brother came by and he said, your roof is gone. I had our time opening the bedroom door because all the roof, everything was collapsed and and uh, all the rain, everything that, I don't know, the, the weight of the, all the water, I guess it uh, collapsed my ceiling in that one bedroom. It was just a big mess in there. It's damage like this that frustrates the scientists at the Northern Tornadoes Project because they say there are ways of guarding against this kind of destruction. Here's Greg Kopp. Over the last uh, 10, 15 years, we've done quite a lot of work on how houses perform under severe winds. And we've discovered that the weakest link in the structure is actually the roof being fastened to the walls. In this experiment posted to YouTube, Cop is working in a lab with one of his students, and they're using a wind tunnel to see the impacts of winds on miniature houses built to scale, and they're observing where they fail. Oh, we had our first failure. The roofs can only hang on for so long before several are ripped away by the wind. In real twisters, not only is this phenomenally costly damage, it can be deadly. When the roof comes off of the wall, um, the walls can collapse and fall on people. And so that is an immediate threat. And then that roof that's failed, it can fly downwind and hit neighboring structures, which is again a threat. And, and windborne debris is a big issue in tornadoes. Um, things like, um, like two by fours flying through the wind travel at almost the speed of the wind. So if you have 200 kilometers an hour, that's a, that's a spear moving pretty fast. Cop and Sill say there's a simple fix. They're called hurricane straps. Or they call them roof tie-downs. And they're just simple little pieces of metal that you nail into the roof truss and nail into the wall studs, um, and it fastens the two. And that, that little piece of metal is strong enough to hold the roof to the walls in a, in a tornado up to EF2. In talks he's given, he describes them this it's, way. It's like a seatbelt for your roof, okay? We, none of us would get in a car these days and not put a seatbelt on. This is the seatbelt for our, for our houses, if you will. Nails are important. But despite having lobbied the government for years to get the straps included in the National Building Code of Canada, it hasn't happened. And as an engineer, cop finds this unacceptable. He says twisters from decades ago prompted other very important changes to the code, but he believes this change would be equally vital. There is um, some really major tornadoes in the 1980s, like the Barry tornado, the Edmonton tornado. But even before that, it was uh, the Blue Sea Lake. Was that the I think that's that, it, that was yeah. the name of it? And a cottage, a cottage was lifted um, off the ground by a tornado, thrown in the lake, and the person in the cottage drowned. So they died by drowning. 
And the issue was the cottage wasn't fastened to the ground, so it had no connection, no foundation connection. And so the recommendation that came out of that was to, was to make sure buildings have proper foundations that they're bolted down. And also then that the roof was fastened through to the walls. And the National Building Code of Canada implemented the wall foundation uh, requirements, but never the roof to wall uh, one. And so that hasn't been there, even though we've known for 40 years that this was a significant life safety issue. The argument he hears against the straps is that they're too costly. But to his mind, they're relatively inexpensive, a couple of hundred dollars per house, and possibly invaluable. He points to the EF2 tornado that hit Barrie, Ontario in 2021. It caused about $100 million in insured damage. The people in Barrie last year that lost their houses, we were there on the anniversary and there were still 15 to 20 houses that weren't occupied. Um, and those are people that are out of their home and having a hard time finding rental. Their insurance is running out and there's all sorts of things going on. So we think, let's just solve this problem with a simple solution, which is put these things in. According to a statement from the Canadian Commission on Building and Fire Codes, the 2020 National Building Code of Canada does require the installation of hurricane straps for houses and small buildings in specific locations in Canada based on higher wind loads. When asked to clarify which specific locations, I was given the names of seven communities, places like Pincher Creek, Alberta, and Resolution Island in Nunavut. As this covers roughly 10,000 people, COP says this is effectively meaningless. The statement from the Canadian Commission on Building and Fire Codes also pointed out that climate change adaptation has been identified as a policy area for attention for the 2025 and 2030 editions of the National Building Code. COP says that hospitals and schools also need to be designed with tornadoes in mind, but currently in Canada, they're not. In Moore, Oklahoma, after they, it was the third major tornado they had in 15 years. And um, what moved the community to actually um, develop um, tornado, a tornado-based building code was a number of school children were killed when, when the school was directly hit. And so I think it's something that we need to be talking about and ensuring that these buildings are safe. Determining what role climate change might be having on the nature of tornadoes remains a challenge and an area of study for COP and SILS. But both are dedicated to getting Canada to better prepare for such events. Something SILS says that the 2018 tornado outbreak in the Ottawa region really illustrated. When we went to do the damage survey, we got out of the airport and none of the traffic lights were working. Our cell phones weren't working. It was basically shut down. And it was pretty much the same thing this year when the derecho went through. That, you know, their, their power grid was off for, for some people for, for 10 days in the city and outside the city even longer. Uh, so there are a lot of vulnerabilities that are exposed by these kinds of events. So that, for me, that was a big one as far as uh, just, just showing, you know, the potential. Also, that it occurred so late in the year, September 21st. It was the latest outbreak of that kind in, in our, on record in Canada. So it just kind of revealed a lot of vulnerabilities and, and maybe some changes that we can expect, you know, late, late occurring big events. And uh, that event was, for me, uh, something that was pretty eye-opening. And as far as impacts on people, uh, you know, we do pay attention to, 
say, say the Barry event, that, which was an EF2 tornado, so it was kind of middle of the of the scale. Um, but yeah, people are complaining about you know, PTSD type uh, impacts on their mental health. We have a colleague who's studying this, these kinds of things just to try to get a better idea of what the long-term uh, social impacts are of these kinds of events. I get, I get pretty scared when I see storm clouds coming. Sometimes we, we get a, a, some kind of warning on our TV when, when there's a severe weather storm coming, but uh, I, I don't know. I guess that's what really scares me when, when I hear that alert on TV. James Blacksmith still feels vulnerable, and he worries that many houses in his community don't have basements to shelter in. He also continues to have pain from the injuries he suffered in that tornado. But mostly, he thinks a lot about those teenagers who were killed. I felt very bad uh, knowing that a couple of young, young people had uh, lost their lives. And I'm, here I am, uh, almost 60 years old, and uh, I think, this, I, they, I, think I, I should have lost my life and let them live, but I don't know. That documentary was produced by Joan Weber with help from Julia Poggle. They're with the CBC's Audio Documentary Unit. Additional audio in that documentary was from the Boundary Layer Wind Tunnel Laboratory at Western University and from a TEDx event also at Western. i got to say, listening to James Blacksmith, it's just an amazing thing that he managed to come through two of them, but you can certainly hear the trauma in his voice. And I've covered hurricanes before and and seen the damage that they do, but the difference between that and a tornado is there's usually lots of notice that it's coming and lots of time to prepare. Tornadoes, another thing entirely, so good thing that scientists are really taking a much closer look at what's changing with them. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Updating you now about a story we first brought you in May. Climate activist and university student Chloe C. filed a complaint with the Competition Bureau against the Royal Bank of Canada. She and other activists, backed by the group EcoJustice, accuse it of greenwashing. Now the Bureau has opened an investigation. C. says the bank is advertising a commitment to help cut emissions but it's also using billions to finance the fossil fuel industry. C, herself an RBC customer, now wants to see the Bureau make some bold findings. I hope that the Competition Bureau will look into RBC's claims and see that 
their actions, their investments in fossil fuels do not match up with their uh, appearance to the public and their claims to the public. Uh, I'm hoping that the Competition Bureau will take a stance on greenwashing, you know, formally say that greenwashing is not acceptable, that companies can't mask behind all these like sustainable looking uh, advertisements, yet not actually be addressing the climate crisis in their actions. Uh, and I'm hoping that the Competition Bureau will impose a fine on RBC. We've uh, requested that RBC be fined with $10 million. RBC says the complaint is unfounded and it strongly disagrees with the allegations. Last month, the president of the bank told the Toronto Star it will soon release new targets aimed at reducing the emissions generated by projects it finances. We will be keeping a close eye on the story. Close your eyes and imagine a place, a place where your loved ones gather frequently, a place where memories are made, a place for future generations. Now imagine that place being ravaged by floods. That's exactly what happened to one Maori community in New Zealand. And I'm going to give you some Maori words here because they come up in the interview. Their ancestral meeting place is called a marae. In this case, it's in Hawke's Bay, which is in one of the country's worst flood zones and that is wreaking havoc on their way of life. Tanya Hopmans knows this firsthand as someone with ancestral connections to the land. Her family, or Fano, has been faced with the decision of whether to defend the Marai or leave their home. Now, it's not something you'd normally think about playing games with, but in this case, they are. In fact, it's a game created just to help answer these profound questions. Tanya Hopmans is the chair of the Manyahaharu Tanitu Trust. Hello. Hello, kia ora. For someone who's never been to the Marae in Hawke's Bay, can you describe what it is and what it looks like? The Marae is a meeting house. It doesn't have rooms inside, but it has a porch and it's in the shape of a person. It represents a person and so... The marae, this whare tipuna or this meeting house, it represents all their ancestors, all their stories, and is often highly decorated inside. And that is the centre point for tribal communities to come and meet, celebrate, discuss, um, debate, and also to grieve. I wonder for you personally, what what and memories or emotions come up when you think about the marae? Oh, it's huge. Look, I've just come back from a tangi or a funeral um, of my uncle in Hawke's Bay uh, that was held at Tangoi or Marae. Um, hundreds of people came over the last three days, uh, were welcomed onto the marae, um, bid their farewell to him, spoke about him to his family, um, and grieved with them for the three days. And then on the last day, he was taken to the nearby cemetery and buried after a service. So for me, it's a place where all those memories are held. So I have learned a lot about the history of our tribe by sitting in that house, listening to elders talk, 
Um, we've been in there and had our meetings, our annual general meetings are held in there or our meetings with our tribal group are held in there uh, regularly where we debate issues and uh, discuss and make decisions, um, including, you know, critical issues like around climate change. Now, as I said, your marae is located in Hawke's Bay. I'm wondering what you've noticed with the intensity and frequency of flooding over the course of your lifetime. Well, it's actually quite odd. The major, major flood we had was in 1981, I think, and it was called Cyclone Bola, and it really wreaked havoc along the whole east coast of New Zealand, causing major slips and massive destruction. And at our marae, a high volume of floodwaters flowed through the marae. It brought masses of silt with it, which required Fano to bulldoze and move around and clean out. It's just an absolute nuisance. And since then, we have had floods every few years, which haven't been as high or as bad, but we know that it's a lottery as to when the next big flood will come. And that's really what our fear has been and our focus has been on what do we do to prepare for the next big flood. Right. So so when faced with that threat, what kinds of solutions were being discussed within the community? Well, um, some years ago, we embarked on um, a project with the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, and they helped us look at the issue of flooding. So we examined what was the history of flooding in our valley. Um, since early written records uh, in Hawke's Bay from the early missionaries who came, there are many documented floods, large floods that were noted in the diaries of missionaries, for example. Part of the problem is historical. We had land confiscations in New Zealand where we lost most of our lands through confiscation and dubious purchases by the Crown. The bit of land that the Crown wasn't interested in is this valley. And of course, that's where our whānau or our families ended up. So what are our options? We didn't have land to move to. So we cast the net wide, looked around our traditional wider area to see if we could find some properties that we could move the marae to. We found some. We um, engaged with landowners to ask if they would be willing to sell some of their land, which was generally farmland. But of the several owners we approached, none of them were interested in selling. So then we also looked at defending in the current location by different means, either raising the level of the, the block that the marae is on or defending through stop banks. So those are some of the options we looked at. And was there, was there disagreement within the community about which, what to do? Oh, it was hugely polarising. Yeah, very upsetting. Alpha and I have, you know, generations, hundreds of years of history on that spot. So it has immense cultural and emotional connection for our whānau. So the prospect of moving was very upsetting for some whānau, but for some other family, they were very practical, very practically minded and wanted to do what would be best for our future generations. They did not want to leave a legacy where their grandchildren were having to defend against floods or deal with floods. 
So, so you apply, um, you applied for a grant, and you approached the Na- NIWA, as you called it, the National yes. Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. And Paula yes. Blackett helped you create this customized game, Mariopoly. She did. Yes. <laughs> I just want yes. you to listen to a little bit of tape of her explaining it. Here we go. The game ended up being a device that we used to bring all of the different pieces of information together and create that experimental decision-making space where people could just try some things and fail safely or succeed boastfully in some cases and just, just see and use that then to reflect back on the real world. For me, game design is about process and something like Mariopoly it really has to be connected to a place. Although Mariopoly can be picked up and used as a learning tool in other situations quite easily, if you really want to make decisions for or help different people in different places make decisions for themselves, then it's better to reflect their own environment because they will most likely make different choices because of their attachment to place. Now, I find this this concept of, of a game so interesting because it is a game, but it's a serious game and the stakes are pretty high. So to, you know, Mariopoly actually sounds a lot like Monopoly. That can sometimes be a very tense strategic game. What was Mariopoly like playing playing with the, the game with community members? <laughs> well, it brought out the competitive nature of our whānau <laughs> well and truly. It also it also showed some dynamics that are within, you know, the structure of our community. So like many communities, we have young people, we call rangatahi, we have pākeke or adults, family, you know, families, mums and dads, but we also have kaumātua or our elders. And it's very interesting the diverse views they have. If we were to do it again and if someone wanted to pick up this game and use it, I would recommend having a think about doing it a couple of times and mixing up the teams. So I think you get different results, or we certainly did, if you had a team which had mixed generations on it versus having teams of age groups. So one team for elders, one team for adults and another team for young people. But for for the whānau who were playing the game, it was a way to debate and argue and advocate for what they wanted in a safe way and then to test it, to test their decision-making. So they had to come up with a a decision in each team and then go ahead with it. They had to pay for things, you know, like the construction of defence or they had to save money if they knew they wanted to move and needed a whole lot of money to buy land. You know, they just had to make decisions and the clock was ticking. And then every 10 years, we would work out whether the steps they had taken were useful or wise because either there was going to be a flood or there wasn't a flood. So they were working with a serious game, which means the topic is serious but it was still a game. No one was going to lose their home at the end of it. No one was going to lose millions of dollars, not real dollars, but they were playing with with um, money. They were playing with something that really was important to them. They were testing all their ideas. And from that perspective, it was really brilliant. And it also brought out different levels of knowledge. You know, who knew what? And... All the teams took um, quite different approaches. And so 
we got to see how over time their different approaches fared with the you know with the elements out there with the, with storms so did you come to a resolution through playing the game <laughs> well, I think we came to a resolution that some solutions work better than others, yes. <laughs> so I think what Paul is referring to, you know, some people were very boastful because they managed to do better than other teams in protecting their marae or, you know, by moving it or by, you know, by uh, defending it. But the other thing that it brought out was that in our community, the marae is central to what we do. But we've also got other needs and other streams of work that are also important, like, you know, restoration in the environment or educating our families or getting them, you know, into jobs, whatever it is. And so communities are dealing with lots of issues, and this was one of them. And so as part of the game, there was also an element of, okay, well, if we spend the money now on this, you know, on, on starting to defend the marae, we won't be able to spend it on programs for our youth because that's the reality no one ever has all the money they need to do all the things they want to do so it was good to have our family be in the position like governors are regularly with too much to do and too little resources so was there a a decision made or are you still discussing it well the discussions have continued so as a result and, and moving on from that game we knew we had to explore several options. So we we looked at um, purchasing land that was unsuccessful. We decided to stay because uh, that was really the only viable option. So since then, in the last few years, we've looked hard at whether we can build the stock banks around the marae to actually defend the marae. But that actually came to a dead end as well because the stock banks that were required were going to have to be certain size, certain width and certain height. And that was going to really impinge on the footprint of the marae. It was also going to have impacts through flood modelling. We could see it was going to have impacts on neighbouring whānau who had homes nearby or land nearby. So in the meantime, a block of land just up the road came available. It's not out of the flood zone but it is higher, it is um, further above sea level and therefore further above the the river. And so we've purchased that land and we are now looking to move the marae just up the road to this higher piece of land. And it's also probably not going to be the forever location because we are still in the flood zone. We will hopefully have defended our marae from the predictable floods that we can estimate now. But who knows what climate change is going to do and how extreme it might get if um, world leaders can't get their act together and sort it out. So at the end of the day, who or what would you say won Mariopoli, if anyone or anything? I think even though we've got all this legacy and history of flooding, there was still this hope that it won't happen again or it won't happen to us. And what Mariopoli did was show those that weren't prepared to do anything, they do that at their peril. But as Fano, you can work through it. You just need to take a deep breath, you know, and that's what the, the game did, is it allowed people to discuss and debate 
without it actually happening, you know, without that pressure of we are actually making a real decision. It allowed people to take a step back, have a little bit of fun, but also debate the issues and debate what to do without it, you know, being real or resulting in anything real. It just gave people a time out to debate in a safe space what should be done. So I think it brought reality checks to what what people thought they could and couldn't do. It brought reality checks and it taught us that it's complex. Well, Tanya Hopmans, I, w- I wish you and, and your community, the Marae, a, a, a smooth transition to, to the new location and, and all the best for the future. Thank you for talking to me. Nga mihi. Nga mihi kia koutou katoa. Thank you. Want to get a job, save some money, help the planet? Alexander Gard Murray says he can help. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University in Rhode Island working on decarbonization. And he's got a brand new interactive tool to help you find your way. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, there are a lot of reasons people avoid discussing the topic of climate change. People think it can be depressing or sad, but you've actually come up with a solution that can inject some hope. Tell me about it. So the point of this project, the Climate Opportunity Map, is to make it really clear to people that there are lots of benefits to acting on climate change. And those benefits aren't just in the far future. They're not just benefits that happen elsewhere. Those benefits are are right here in our communities in North America. Tell me about the tool then. How does it work? So the Climate Opportunity Map takes scientific projections about the economic benefits from acting on climate change. And it tries to make those benefits accessible, tries to make them easy to see, and tries to project them to the local level. So people don't just need to see how those benefits will affect a whole country. They can see how those benefits will affect their community. All right. Let's make this visual for an audience that can only listen. We're talking about a map of the United States. What kind of economic, social, and health benefits would people see if they enter a zip code into the map? So if someone goes in, enters their zip code, probably the first thing they're going to see is the number of jobs. So there's going to be huge demand for renewable energy if we take the, the climate crisis seriously. And that's going to create jobs all across the country. So they'll see how many renewable construction jobs we project are going to be created in their area, but also how many renewables operations jobs they're going to see. The goal of the map is to give people a sense of what's possible. We know low-income neighborhoods can be more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So what does the map say about whether climate opportunities are equitably distributed? Some of the benefits that it projects are going to be especially relevant for low-income communities. Not only jobs, but bill savings. So energy tends to be a larger part of low-income families' expenditure every month. So if we can get uh, more electrified appliances into homes, more efficient appliances, then those are going to have an especially big impact for low-income families 
But say I live in, let, let's choose Dallas, Texas. The map shows that within the next few decades, the, the district will gain 69 new jobs building renewable energy infrastructure and 20,000 new jobs making energy efficiency improvements. Once I know this, what do I do with the information? So I think the next step for people in an area, especially if your politicians have not been champions for climate action, is to reach out. Reach out to your politicians and say, there are these benefits that I want my community to see. I want us to be actively trying to seize those benefits. And Texas actually is building a lot of renewable energy, even though Texas politicians have not always been on the forefront of climate action. The economic opportunity is clear enough that they're building lots of renewable energy infrastructure down in Texas. So I'd say if you see the benefits in your local area, you should contact your politicians to make sure that they're seizing them. And you should reach out to other people in your community who are already fighting for climate action and, and join them. Because ultimately, these benefits are only going to materialize if we actually make climate action a priority. Have you had an opportunity yet to see whether the information has had that kind of an impact? So thousands of people have visited the site since it launched, and we've seen a lot of excitement and interest in it. I think ultimately whether it translates to action is going to depend not just on whether people visit this map, but on whether the map in combination with a lot of great activism, a lot of great political momentum, whether that taken together uh, makes more action happen. I don't think the map on its own is going to uh, change the game. Do, do you have any plans to expand it to Canada? I would love to expand it to Canada. Uh, the As I mentioned before, the map is based on existing science. So I didn't create the science that the map relies on. It takes existing studies and reprojects their data to these local community levels. In order to do that for Canada, I just need to find uh, that science there. And I, I expect that a lot of these projections have been made for Canada as well. So I'd love to expand it to Canada and to other countries. And all of this is has been a pretty huge undertaking for you, I would think. What, what inspired you to take it on? Before I became a political scientist, I was a climate activist. And I learned pretty quickly that if you just talked about benefits for people's grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and benefits for other countries, that that wasn't always enough to motivate action. I realized that we're not always telling the story about how the benefits of climate action are close by. They're going to come in the near term. They're going to come locally. And I think people want to hear about the benefits that are going to, to happen locally. You say you created this map to inspire hope in others. I'm, I'm wondering, how do you remain hopeful for the future? So I've been working on climate change for a long time, and I've actually become more optimistic. And that's partially because I've seen a huge surge in activism, especially among young people. I've become more optimistic because I think politicians have started to become more serious. And finally, I'm more optimistic because the technology has improved. 20, 30 years ago, a lot of climate solutions were costly. You were talking about a sacrifice today to help our grandchildren. But 
the technology now, whether it's solar panels or heat pumps, has gotten so good that in many cases, it would make financial sense even if it wouldn't help with climate change. And so because of activism, because of political momentum, and because of technology, I actually feel like we're on a better path than we were when I started. That doesn't mean I think we're guaranteed to solve the climate crisis. We still have so much work to do. There's so much obstruction. It's in no way a sure thing. But I do think we are traveling in a better direction now. Alexander Gard-Murray, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. you know about a story that is coming up on next week's show. The heat dome that descended on Western Canada in the summer of 2021 killed hundreds of people, but it also had a devastating impact on one of British Columbia's natural wonders. Because of the extreme heat, water from melting glaciers thundered down Mount Robson, wiping out sections of the majestic Berg Lake Trail, destroying bridges and stranding hikers along the route. Mount Robson Provincial Park Manager Elliot Ingalls remembers the day BC Parks closed the trail. When we were up here for those few days evacuating people, it was about 37 degrees at this elevation, which was just incredibly, incredibly hot for this area. And we were watching the glaciers. It looked like they were sweating. They were, you could see water, visibly seeing water, like pooling off of the glacier. This glacier you can see is starting to separate and it will start to calve and move and I mean they're they have a finite lifespan and we're watching them recede in front of us and and last year especially the volume of water combined with the hot weather and then a couple of big storms that that seem to connect with each other is what created this major event like I mean this area was underwater this bridge was underwater yeah, it was, it was like nothing I've ever seen in, in my lifetime working in parks. And I hope we don't see it again anytime soon, but I don't think there's any guarantees that, that we won't. Now, more than a year after the flood, BC Parks is rebuilding the trail in a way it hopes will protect it from future climate disasters. Next week on What on Earth, CBC Vancouver reporter Rihanna Schmunk takes us up Mount Robson, to find out how experts are reinforcing the park against the ravages of climate change and how their lessons could help protect other vulnerable parks across the country. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producer Rachel Sanders and me. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.